want to ask right now that you would bless your words. Pumay's prayed, and Lord, I just feel in increasingly, Lord, that all we have is you, Lord. Um, beyond anything else, Lord, everything else in this life is so fragile. The only thing that is actually sure is you. And uh, I pray right now that you would reassure hearts in this room with a fresh vision of who you are. Lord, I pray. Lord, I thank you for the guests who are with us. Lord, if anyone's not a Christian here today looking in, Lord, would you help answer some of the deep questions of life and faith, I ask. And I pray all these prayers in, in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if any of you have read, and I've, I, I've thrown out an A.W. Tozer book before, the book, The Knowledge of the Holy. Has anyone read this book, The Knowledge of the Holy? I can recommend, if you've not read this book, and if you want to go into deep places with God, buy this book. I think you can still get it on Amazon or eBay, and it is, it is profound. But he starts his book by writing this sentence. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I don't know if you believe that or not. The thing, the, what you think about God when you think about him, that is the most important thing about you. Not what you do, not how successful you are, not what you look like, not how popular you are, but he contends that what comes into your mind when you think of God, even right now, that is the most important thing because he says, who you believe God is will shape everything else about your life. Who you believe God is and how he relates to you, what he thinks of you, what you think of God will change everything else in your life and when you look at scripture it does actually seem to play out because when you go back to the very beginning of scripture in genesis 3 we have this moment where we're told the serpent comes to adam and eve now the beginning everything was perfect and the, the, the uh, satan the serpent in this moment he wants to come and and rob and destroy life what does he do he doesn't come up to adam and eve and say hey guys i've got a plan if you follow me you can destroy your life screw everything up and your children's life and everything will be ruined for the rest of human history do you want to follow me if, if someone invited that you'd be like no thank you i'm walking the other way what does he do he tries to misconstrue the nature of who god is he comes and whispers and he says is it true that god says you're not allowed to eat of any of the trees of the garden he changes the nature of god in their minds so that they begin to think maybe god is withholding something from me you ever felt that what maybe god is actually maybe he's not as good as he says he is maybe there is blessings that he's not giving to me that i actually could do with right now and suddenly if you do believe that well you might go find your joy in other places i'm going to get hold of life for myself and we're told satan continually tries to blind the minds so that we can't see the true glory of god when i was growing up as a teenager i had this basic understanding that if i wanted to follow jesus it was this kind of gray existence of very like weak squash in smelly church halls with people who didn't look like me and it was like a moral existence and if i wanted to follow my own life and my mates lives it was fun and exciting and like the weekend was a lot more exciting than getting up at 10 a.m on a sunday morning and it was this kind of polarization what i had done has misunderstood the nature of who god was who was actually offering infinite joy if i would find it in a deeper place 
And so the scriptures continually ask us to see whom God actually is. In Proverbs 29, there's this verse where it says that unless the people have a vision, they perish. And if you've been in like any church or leadership circles, you know, like you can go to seminars where this is used as like the leadership verse. You know, like what you need for your life is a three year plan. What is your vision? And you're like, right, let's get a strategy together. This is what my vision is. Oh, yeah, of course, because if you don't aim at anything, you get nothing and all that kind of thing. But actually, in the context, it's not about having a three year plan for your life. It's having a vision of whom God is. Because we're told in John 17, 3, that in the knowledge of Jesus Christ is eternal life. It's in seeing Jesus and in that place where we get to see him and know him, we find life. So in Isaiah, who is in a time of need, anxiety as a nation, uncertainty as a nation, he goes to church one day or temple and what happens, it's an amazing thing happens, he actually meets God. Imagine that. You think, have you ever gone to church? You'd be like, my goodness you go you leave and think i think i just met god like the last place you'd expect to meet god actually in church he goes to temple and there he says i saw the lord high and lifted up because the, the lord knew that in this moment of uncertainty as a nation he didn't need just a pep talk isaiah these times are going to be tough but i believe in you you are the guy may you arise what he needed was a vision of god This is who you are in all of your splendor and your glory. And I would contend for us in this age, for us in London and even for us in our own hearts, the thing we need more than anything else, more than a pep talk, more than a few tips on how to be a better you, is a revelation of whom the Lord of glory actually is. So when you get to Revelation here at the end of the Bible, you've got this New Testament church that in all honesty is in a bit of a mess. So sometimes church leaders talk about we want to be a New Testament church. And we have to be very careful when we talk about what it is to be a New Testament church because when you actually read about the church, they were in a lot of them, they were in a mess. The culture was in a mess, the church was a mess, there was infightings, divisions, there were people being persecuted left, right and centre. Like, you've got to be careful what you wish for. And so the, the state was so serious that we're told that Jesus had to come to his church and literally directly dictate letters to the individual churches. Imagine this, like Jesus, like Trinity Church, Island, you're in such a bad state. I'm not even going to send a preacher. I'm not even going to send an. I'm coming down there myself to talk to you. And he, said, he dictates these seven letters. And so we read this about, for example, Ephesus. They are being persecuted. There are mobs who are coming and ripping the church apart physically. The church in Smyrna, they were in being imprisoned. So imagine like turning up to group one week and then next week you're like, oh, where, where's Mark gone? Oh yeah, Mark's uh, down in jail at the moment because he's a Christian now. And like, like that was happening on a regular basis. In the church of Pergamon, we're told, they were doing their mission next to the throne of Satan. Imagine that. Like, where are you church planting? Like, we're church planting next to Nando's. Like, this is not a bad deal. In Pergamum, they were church planting next to the throne of Satan. You're like, yeah, we're going to go next to the throne of Satan. We're praying for the demonic beings, and we're going to ask that God's... Like, they were in an intense situation. The church in Philadelphia, we're told, were small, struggling to gain momentum, trying to get their go. They were like church planting, you know, that feeling like, God, will you come through on this? 
The church in Sardis, we're told, they were soiling their garments, which is probably a sermon and a sermon series for a whole other day. The church in Laodicea, we're told they were lukewarm. They're just like, nah, it's all right, but I've got a whole other life to live, actually. And John himself was in jail in Patmos. Things weren't going well. And what did the church need at this point? They didn't need some kind of like church growth guru to come in and say, look, do these four things, the church will do really well. What they needed was a revelation of whom God was. John Stott, who's an Anglican vicar up in Oxford Circus, he's died now, he says this, the highest of all missionary motives is neither obedience to the Great Commission nor love for sinners who are alienated and perishing, but rather zeal. He says, a burning and passionate zeal for the glory of Jesus Christ. He says, that is the one thing that will sustain your life as a Christian. Not simple obedience, that will get you so far. Not simple, I just love this city and I love my friends, that will get you so far. The one thing that will sustain you for the long term is a zeal in your heart to know the glory of Jesus Christ and to see him known. This comes to the very heart of what we are about as a church, to see the glory of God known across London and the nations. This is why we put this on banners, because the one thing that we need and London needs is not a few tips, but a revelation of the God who made us. Amen? And this is what we get in these verses. So in Revelation chapter 4, let me just read this part. What God does in this moment is the church is struggling. He says this, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the Spirit, and behold. That angel says, Come up here, you need to see things. And church, we need to see things. We need to pray that our eyes might be opened. And if I can say this, the last few months, I feel like as a personal testimony, like I've known spiritual things in, in, in my life. But I feel like the last few months, whatever, it, whatever reason it is, and the process of planting a church, like I, f- I feel like, I, I talked to it, it's like a spiritual awakening. I, I don't know how to like, I'm seeing things in a fresh way, like because I've come to this realization that actually I, I really do need God. Yeah. I, I, I'm not clever enough, good enough, worthy enough to, to do this thing. Like we as a church are not good enough, clever enough, wealthy enough, cool enough, strategic enough, personable enough to do this. I'm not talking at you, Mike. I don't know why you were laughing about that. <laughs> it wasn't a personal dig or anything. Like, all, all, uh, uh, all I have is Jesus. I, I, and I, it's just kind of like, you grow, don't you, in depth as a Christian. You just continue to walk. But I just feel like the last few months are like, actually, all I have is Jesus. He's the, he is genuinely my only hope. Everything else can just slip through your fingers in a moment. The one thing that we need, church, is to see Jesus, to know him. That will sustain us. If you wake up in the morning think, right, it's another day of obedience, <laughs> that will get you till Tuesday. I guarantee, like, maybe Wednesday if you're really like a tough night, you're like, no, I can do this. 
the one thing that will sustain you for the long haul is this just understanding this awareness of the beauty and the glory and the strength of Jesus, this knowledge that he walks with you, who he actually is. And I have to keep going, so otherwise we're going to be here till three. So the first thing that he sees is this, is a throne. He says in chapter four, verse two, at once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne. And in these, in these two chapters, he mentions this throne 19 times. This throne dominates his vision of heaven. I don't know what you see when you look up into the heavens and in your mind's eye, you look at Jesus. But the one thing that the saints, past, present, and future seem to see is this throne, that, this ancient throne of glory. And this throne symbolizes who has the governing rights in London. Who has the governing rights over your heart? Who has the governing rights in the, un in the universe? Who has the governing rights in the spiritual realm? And we're told that the one who has all governing rights is sat in heaven right now on his throne and he is ruling and reigning. And he is utterly at peace. You know that? Jesus is not anxious. Sometimes Christians, we can become anxious. You think, oh, is the church going to be okay? It doesn't feel like culture's really going our way. What's going to happen about the church? You know, Jesus is not anxious about his church. He is sat very comfortably. We're told in Psalm 2, and the, the, the psalmist is asking, why do the nations rage? And why do the peoples plot in vain? He asks the question, why do the kings set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed one? They're asking, like, why does the culture seem to be railing against God when he's the one who's pouring out blessing? And we're told that the Lord sits in heaven and he looks on and he laughs. He's not anxious. He says, I've already set my king on my throne. And we walk as God's people with this awareness that there is this throne at the center of the universe. And Jesus, the one with all power and authority, sits on it. And he is working out his plans. Amen. So we can be sure with all of the ups and downs, we are going to stand one day, not before your boss, not before your peers, not before your grades. That is not going to be the thing that you get marked by. Oh, this is how you did in your A-levels, by the way. Do you know, like, you're going to stand before the throne of Jesus where infinite grace comes pouring out upon you like a waterfall and it's just infinite love unconditional acceptance in his presence and we stand before his throne even right now so as we go into our week this week we're not going trying to work grovelingly before this throne we are living with confidence before this throne with infinite strength with one who says i love you you are welcomed into the inner courts of my throne room if you live like that that will change everything you can walk into work with an inner strut knowing the King of Kings, the one who sits on the throne, who will judge everybody in this city, he says, you're welcome. And on this throne, we're told in Revelation 5, the Lord sits with his hand out, literally like this, we're told, it's in his right hand, or literally on his right hand, there is this scroll, and he is holding this scroll out before this congregation in the spiritual realm. And we're not told here, but in Ezekiel and the Psalms, we're told that on this scroll, and in this scroll, is written the purposes of God for the blessings and the judgments of the nations. 
So everything that God intends is within this scroll. And we're told on the front and the back to say everything, all of human history, past, present and future, what God intends to do in London, in our lives, for our church, in our individual lives, in 2020 is written here. If you were to scroll through this, you could find it. Ah, there's London, there's Waterloo. Oh yeah, I can see there's, yep, there's Southwark. Okay, there's Islington. I can see what's going to be happening in Fulham. I can see what's, well, everything is being laid out here in this scroll and we're told that the Lord holds his hand out and this mighty angel preaches and asks this question to the congregation. He says, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Just imagine this massive booming voice going out across the universe. Who is worthy to open the seals of this scroll? Knowing that in this day and age, that whatever was written in a scroll would not be enacted until the worthy one could come and open the wax seal. And whenever the wax seal was opened on a scroll like this, in that moment, legally, everything within the scroll would have to be enacted. If the scroll was still sealed up with the wax seal, whatever was in there was locked up and it would not be enacted, it would not be law. And so this angel asks the question, pleading really, that someone out there would be worthy to come forward and open the scroll so that the purposes of God for the blessings of the nations would be unfolded and enacted in our time. And what we're told is this, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Basically, this hushed silence falls upon the congregation. And it's just like this huge tumbleweed moment as everyone's kind of looking around thinking like, Chris, are you, are you, are you worthy? Like, are you, are you, is, is, any, is anyone worthy in the universe who could come and open the scroll that the blessings of God might come down on the earth? And we're told no one. No one is worthy to come and see God's blessings known. Which I, hear me out here, I take as a kind of odd encouragement. Because if you've ever done this thing, I don't encourage it, but I know you're human like me, so you have done it, where you've compared your life to other people. Ever done that? Anyone want to confess? You know, like, yeah, okay, thanks guys. Like you, you like, you look around at other people and you think like, I wonder why they're doing so well in life. I thought that like why does their life seem to be so easy it's just like seems to go like from one ease one ease one like oh, oh their family's so nice disgusting yeah lovely like they have, their kids are so well behaved like oh my God. you know like everything they get promotion after promotion the money and the house and they've got they seem to go on amazing holidays all the time and it's just every and they're christians as well so they're godly with it, it makes it even worse you're like why is it like this kind of like why do they do so well in life and this thing can begin to creep in you think maybe Maybe they're slightly more worthy or something like that. Ever thought that? Maybe they've got something or they're like on some kind of inside thing with God where they've got a blessing and God's like, guys, you're doing really well. I've got some more stuff for you coming in 2021, but you just keep going. By the way, guys, you need to try a bit harder. We'll need to do a little bit better if, if I see you praying a bit more in the mornings. Like maybe you get a promotion, but we'll just see, see how things go. And like these guys are well. Like, and, you, and you can live like that, can't you? You can begin to feel like maybe they, they've got something that I, I don't have. And if, you, if I'm honest, planting a church, I can begin to look over my shoulder and, th and look at other churches. and think, well, like, 
Like we're, we're in London, so you're like every like the the best of churches are literally around the corner. Like there are churches we will never compete with, and you think like, Lord, why why, why do they do so? What is it that they've got? And you, I, I can begin to think, oh, I've got to put this on you now. Like maybe they've like got something in God that I don't have. Like maybe I what it, I don't know what it is. Like they've just got a blessing and a, they're worthy somehow. They they can open stuff and God they got prayers. God they pray. God listen. Like maybe here's the encouragement. It's an odd encouragement. No one here in this room or in London or in the heavenly realms, even the holiest of beings, the archangels. No one is worthy to come and open this. No one is getting on in life because they are better than you. No one is getting blessed in any way because somehow they've got this inside track with the Holy of Holies. We're told here no one is worthy. What this means is that John weeps. He just looks around and says, there is no one worthy on earth who is going to open these scrolls. And he's just contemplates what London life and the nations would look like if the blessings of God were not enacted in our time. And he contemplates this and he is broken within. There is something within him that says this cannot be. You ever had those moments where you just look into the future of your life and there's nothing there except darkness? Moments of depression, you think, I cannot see anything good coming, just grinding every day, day after day, and he breaks down and he weeps. One of the things that at pastor school you kind of learn, maybe through just making mistakes, is that if someone is depressed, you don't tell them just to cheer up. Like, that's like not good. Like, it's just a tip, husbands to wives. If your wives come and tell you, like, oh, everything's, don't just, <laughs> like, you, you don't just, like, if someone's on the floor, like, really, really in a low place. You don't tell them, like, cheer up. I'm sure it's going to be fine. I'm sure it's not going to be as bad as you think it is. It'll be fine. Like, get up, you know, have a cup of coffee, get on with the rest of your day. What do you do? You kind of get down and you just hug them. Note to self, husband, like, just give them a hug. Just give them a hug. What does this elder do? To the Apostle John. Verse 5, one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Literally, like he literally says, don't cry. Like imagine this, John is bellowing and these are ugly tears. These aren't like, you know, Sinead O'Connor, one nice, ah, like that'll go really nicely on a music video. Great, we've got that, we're going to send that out. Like these are ugly tears that you will only cry behind closed doors. This is probably the only thing you could hear right now in this congregation in the heavenly realm. It's just John on the floor bellowing with deep, depressed tears. And this angel comes along and says, come on, mate, don't cry. If you say that, you have got to have some kind of objective, concrete reason why you do not need to cry anymore, that there is a victory that's going to be coming about. And so he says, John, John, stand up, don't weep, because there is something coming and you need to see, you need to open your eyes and see. And he says, weep no more. Behold, see something, John, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and open its seven seals. He says, John, there's a lion on the throne at the center of glory, the, the lion of the tribe of Judah. 
Jacob prophesied in the Old Testament and prophesied over his son Judah and said over Judah, Judah of all my sons, you are going to be the one who is going to rule and reign. In your hand, he prophesies, is going to be the scepter. And he prophesies this amazing word, the obedience of the nations is going to be to you. Imagine receiving that word. The obedience of the nations is going to come to you, Judah. And yet we're also told this is the root of David. If you know anything of David from your days at Sunday school, you will know that David is like, he was a man's man. Like he was a dude. He, he, he was a kind of guy who would grow up, he was a shepherd and he was looking after sheep. And if a bear or a lion would take one of his sheep, he wouldn't just think like, oh, like, okay, I've won down. I'm sure my owner's not really gonna count all of them. So it's probably fine. He would hunt these bears and lions down to practice fighting. Like he would go after, he was a man's man. He was a military leader. He would go into battle, be victorious, come home, write a song about it, publish it. The nation of Israel would burst into song, praise this King David who would go onto military might, onto military might. And we're told that the root of David, the military leader who will conquer all is sat on the throne. And it's not David, it's the root, it's the offspring of David. And in Romans 15, Paul tells us that the true one who is sitting on this throne, the lion of the tribe of Judah, is King Jesus himself, who has not just won over one victory, but has won a victory for all time, not just for one nation, but for all the nations, and not just in the earth, but under the earth and on the earth and in the spiritual realm. King Jesus has won a battle that is victorious forever and ever and ever. Amen. And this Jesus sits on his throne with more reality than you are sitting on your chair right now. The conquering one. When you see Jesus walking around in the Gospels, it's funny, like you, you watch him, he actually does walk around with this lion-like swagger. You ever notice that? There's this kind of like lion-like strength to him. I mean, he, he, you watch him and he walks around, there's this, there are these amazing moments. He, he, he walks into this synagogue at one point, knowing that these people want to kill him. And they push him out of the synagogue and they take him to the edge of the cliff, wanting to kill this Jesus for the way in which he teaches. And we're just told this really weird moment in the Gospels that the crowd just parts and he walks through them and gets on the, with the rest of his day. Imagine this, like, like this football mob ready to kill Jesus, push him off the edge of the cliff, and he's just like, not today, guys. Uh, I'm just going to walk on and carry on with the rest. I need lunch, if that's all right. And it's like, there's no, there's no anxiety in his heart. He says in John 10, I have authority to lay my life down, and I have authority to take it up. So unless I give you authority to kill me, I'm not going to give you my life. There's this amazing moment where he's on the boat with these fishermen in the Sea of Galilee and this storm is swirling through and these hardened fishermen are freaking out thinking this is the night that we die. And they shake Jesus because he is sleeping like a baby in the stern of the ship. If you watched like lions, David Attenborough talking about lions and you see them, lions sleep quite happily wherever they seem to find themselves. And they're like, lions don't care where they sleep. They'll sleep in the middle of the savannah because they know no one's coming to touch them. There will be other predators, but there is no other predator beyond the lion. He is the apex predator of the savannah. So if he feels like sleeping here, he'll sleep here. If he feels like sleeping here, he'll sleep here. You see, like the other little creatures, 
they're like always furtive. Like, where do we sleep? Where do we go? Like, you go on guard. Little meerkats. Like, everyone, you go on guard. We'll sleep. Okay, can we sleep? Yes, you can sleep. And they're all like, anyone, anyone going to kill us? No, 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 going to kill us. The, sly, the lion, though, is just like, yeah, I think I'll sleep here today. And there could be hyenas and jackals prowling around, but no, no one's coming. And Jesus sleeps like that, night after night, knowing that there are people out to kill him. But he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. People would leave his teaching and they would talk about this kind of roaring authority that he would teach with. Like, where does he get that kind of roaring-like authority from? They would wonder. What some of them hadn't twigged yet was that he was the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so this elder says, you've got to see that there is one sat on the throne who is an all-conquering one. And so this is what we have. John says, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw, what does he see? He looks up, and for the very first time, he looks up and he sees a, a lamb. Which is, a, like, you think, is that a misprint? No, he sees a lamb. The elder says, look up and see a, a lion, and he looks up and he sees this lamb. Jonathan Edwards, who is a, a Puritan preacher, powerful man back in the 1700s, he says this, what we see here is a display of the admirable conjunction of the diverse excellencies in Jesus Christ. Which I'm sure is exactly what you were thinking about <laughs> when you heard that as well, because that's what I thought, obviously. But what he's saying is here, when John looks up and he gets told, look, here's a lion, and he looks up and sees a lamb, Jonathan Edwards is saying, look, there is actually a display here of the diverse character traits of Jesus Christ. There is the strength of Jesus and there is the meekness of Jesus put on display here because he is both the Lion of the tribe of Judah and the Lamb of God who is slain. Amen. But it's more than this, that like sometimes Jesus, you know, he's lion-like. You know, with the Pharisees, like he really roars and he has a go of them. But, you know, with the people who need like a hug and a cry and like he's like meek-like. So, so sometimes Jesus is like a lion, sometimes like a lamb. Like, oh, Jesus, I need you as a lamb today. No, no, I need you as a lion today. What's going on here is something more profound. It's more than him just being infinitely strong. And it's more than him being perfectly meek and tender with us. What we have here in Revelation 5 is that the way that Jesus Christ exercises his infinite strength towards us individually and as a church and as London and the nations. The way that he exercises his strength is through coming to us as a lamb. And he is always exercising infinite strength by coming to us as the lamb of God. Does that make sense? So it's different to God sometimes being super strong and sometimes being super meek. He is always exercising his strength towards us. And he exercises his strength through lamb-like meekness. How do we see that? He goes on, he says, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, just imagine the kind of gasps in heaven. Like there's a lamb, like 
We're expecting the lion to come and take the scroll, and yet this lamb pops off the throne, like hops along, and takes the scroll out of the hand of the Father. And the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll. So you are the worthy one to open its seals for, why is he the worthy one? For you were slain and by your blood you ransom people for God. So why is the lion of the tribe of Judah worthy? Because he came into the earth and became a lamb and became the slain one on a cross. So the lion of the tribe of Judah roared creation into being. He spoke creation, the heavens and the earth into being. And yet he came into our world as a lamb walking around. And at any point, Jesus could have saved himself from the cross. He kept chastising the disciples for trying to fight the Roman soldiers away, saying, this is what I came for. And he comes, he says, he says at one point when they're trying to fight them off at Gethsemane, he says, I, I could call 12 legions of angels down right now and they could pluck me up from this place in all righteousness and leave humanity in their sins. And yet he stays as a lamb and he walks silently to the cross and people would ridicule him as this lion of the tribe of Judah was hanging on the cross they're saying, you saved others, why don't you save yourselves? Which, uh, yourself, which he could have done at any moment. And yet he chose to hang there in all meekness as the Lamb of God, ready to be slain for our sins. So that we might be redeemed. We might receive ransom from Satan, sin and death. And in that place, the Lamb of God dies and he takes everything that will hold you back in this life every work of the enemy, every sin, every failure, every weight in your life, even death itself, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, hangs on that throne. He becomes our sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God and he redeems a people to himself. Hallelujah. This is the gospel. Amen. And what we need to do is gather around this throne where Jesus still has his marks of the cross on his body. Because here's, here's the, the news for us. How Jesus conquered back in that day, his first ever victory over Satan, sin and death in the past, for the present and for the future is exactly the same way that he will conquer today. Jesus wins this great victory on the cross and he, that at that point, opens the scrolls. And we're told in the rest of Revelation that he begins to open seal after seal after seal. And the blessings of God start to flood down. And we are experiencing those even in our generation, even in this year, in our city. The purposes of God are being rolled out. The way that he does that now is still through the lion of the tribe of Judah coming in meekness as the Lamb of God. So if you feel vulnerable today... If you feel like, I'm not sure I've got everything together, but I want to be involved in serving and blessing the purposes of God, if you feel more like a lamb today than a lion, you are in a good position. If you feel like I don't have everything together, I don't feel strong for tomorrow, I don't have internal, physical, whatever it might be, emotional, relational, financial strength, and yet I do want to be involved in the purposes of God, you are in the perfect position. Because it is through lambs that the Father loves 
to work. We, we, we love to talk in like quite, honestly, quite violent terms. I don't know if you ever noticed, like, we talk about doing well in life. We generally talk about like either killing it, like bossing it, nailing it, smashing it, dominating, whatever it might be. Like, oh, how did the meeting go on Monday? Dominated, absolutely fine, smashed it, did really well. Like I was, I was preaching a while back and I, was, I met someone else and he was, uh, who I knew and he was in the congregation and I mentioned this a while back and he was like, yeah, as you were saying that, I was just texting my mum and he was, I just wanted to say like, it's going really well. And I said, yeah, Daniel's really killing it. And I was like, yeah, exactly. Like we, even sermons like, yeah, you killed it today. That was amazing. Like, so we've got this, like, we want to be like, the, but actually when we take a little reflection in our own hearts, you think how, how much maybe we're trying to overcompensate for something in like, actually we don't feel like, and we're trying to verbally compensate for something because we don't actually feel like that inside. And part of us is just owning up to that fact. Actually, I feel like more like wax, melting wax inside my heart than like a lion. And that is the perfect posture for someone to be used. You might not be a Christian and you're here today and you're thinking, I'm not sure how to get life together. And when I look at my future, I don't feel strong. I actually feel internally like my heart is fluttering like a leaf. You're in the perfect place to receive the blessings of God, the forgiveness of God, the favor of God, the strength of God. Because contrary to our language of dominating, Jesus in the Beatitude says stuff like this. He says that blessed are the meek, for they are the ones who will inherit the earth. <coughs> blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It seems like the kingdom of God belang- belongs to lambs. Which I feel encouraged by. Because... I would suggest everyone in this room has their own sense of vulnerabilities. So aware in London, the kind of the might of London, that actually you just feel like, how do I find my way in this city? Like, how, how do I make it? Where do I, where? You're in the perfect place to receive the power of God. And what I want to do in these last few moments as we respond is I would like us just to gather around this throne that is more touchable and physical if we could just see it than the stuff we're looking at right now. Because in this victory of Jesus Christ, we have our victory. And you can go out feeling like a lamb and you can find lion-like strength coming upon you. At that moment, you go out in weakness and you think, I'm just going to try, I'm going to do my best. I'm looking to God, I'm trusting God. And suddenly you find things happening around you and you think... Where did that happen? How did that happen? How did that occur? For the lion of the tribe of Judah loves to come upon lambs and bless because he is the true worthy one. And as we gather around communion, we're going to take the bread and we're going to drink the wine, symbolizing the death, this victory. What we are doing, we are coming as, as lambs. And I'd encourage us to come like that. Come even now just thinking about what are the vulnerabilities that I live with? What are some of the sins that I live with? What are the, some of the ways in which I feel fragile and lamb-like? And bring your lambness to the cross and receive all the power and the strength and the forgiveness that God gives. And in this place, we will experience the kingdom of God. Amen.
Let me just pray for us. Maybe if the band could come back up. just a moment we're going to stand but I just want to encourage you now that if you're a Christian just to ask Lord would you reveal yourself as I take the bread and as I drink the wine would you open up my spiritual eyes that I would see you the all conquering victor and if you're not a Christian here today even now as I'm talking I want to encourage you to ask that prayer. Lord, if you are real, would you show me who you really are? It's so simple. There's no hoops to jump through. There's no morality to attain. It's a simple vision of Jesus. For some of you to come to communion today is going to be the first ever occasion. And you need to know that you are welcome. You are welcome to come to the table, that if you desire Jesus, if you want to give him your frailty and wrongdoing, and you want to receive eternal life, you are so welcome to come to the table. And if you're not a Christian and you're thinking, like, I'm interested, but I'm just not ready, you know you are absolutely at home here. Just be at peace. Just ask the Lord a question. Ask someone else a question. Just sit and ponder. But we're going to gather around Jesus Christ. Amen. So just in this place of prayer, let me read these words that Paul gives us. Paul tells us that when we gather, we're to do this. He says, I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance for me and in the same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup you proclaim the lord's death until he comes can i invite you to stand together This is what's going to happen for the next few minutes. We've got 10 minutes or so. It's going to respond to the Lord. The band are going to lead us in worship. And there are two tables at the back with the wine and there's non-alcoholic wine and there's gluten-free bread. And as the worship begins to play, it's going to invite you, as you're ready, to go and take of the bread, to drink of the wine and come with the posture of a lamb. Just say, Lord, here I am. I do not have everything together, but I'm ready to receive your strength. And I desire your strength. Amen.